right, I was, uh, I was gone last week. I thought John Politan did just a fantastic job of continuing on in our, our series here on 1 Peter. I had a wedding to do uh, back in Cleveland for some dear friends of mine, their daughter, and they committed to it actually before I came here. And so I flew back to perform the wedding. And then, fascinating, I, there's a church out in Michigan that I wanted to check out. Don't worry. It's just a church that I wanted to... Uh, they're doing some interesting things and so I drove over to to Grand Rapids y'all know where Grand Rapids Michigan is and so I drove over to Grand Rapids and it's a church called Ada Bible Church and my brother became a Christian there in 1995 when they were just a few hundred people you guys can remember some of you remember when Scottsdale Bible Church was that small and over the last 13 years God has blessed Ada Bible Church to the point where they're just almost the size of us right now as far as in, in, in a small volume of people that attend but they don't have the facility that we have like by any stretch of the imagination. And so the way they've kind of uh, skinned that cat is that they have you know, less than a thousand people that, that worship in one of two Sunday morning services in the main worship center. And then they have four more intimate video venues throughout their entire campus. And, uh, and as soon as you mention video venue, you know, a lot of people <clears throat> today go, I'm not going. And, uh, and that was the response that, that they initially had. But now, three years into it, picture, you know, like a thousand people worshiping and then, and then four different venues of 100 to 500 people throughout the building that has their own live worship and a live pastor and all of that, different kinds of worship. But then the message is piped in via video. And, uh, and 60%, 40% of the people will be worshiping in a venue at this church at any one time. And so like, I was real intrigued by that because we're going to be pioneering some stuff next year kind of similar to this, which I'll be explaining more in the coming weeks. And, uh, and so I wanted to see it. So I th- flew in four pastors from Scottsdale Bible Church, and we spent the day there and talked with their staff about how it works. And, and it was really interesting. The, the one bummer about it all is that uh, in Grand Rapids, they're not nearly as expressive in worship as some of us are down here. Do we all know what I'm talking about like that? Like, I mean, some of you very clearly act like the frozen chosen, but I'm telling you, in Grand Rapids... It's like, wow, you know, and my brother's that way. Like, Pete is really subdued, you know, he makes, and, and so, like, when Pete's in church, you know, he'll be like this the whole time, you know, even if it's a rocking song, he's like this, and, and then after we'll say, you know, like, wasn't that great? You know, I'm like, oh, I couldn't tell, you know, and, and, uh, and that's kind of the way he is. So, Lucas Cooper and I were there together in one of the venues, and we just couldn't help it. I just had to do this just to show them how to worship, and, uh, and so I did embarrass all of you, and, uh, <laughs> And it was just a great weekend to spend there, and, and we're glad to be back. So here's what we are pioneering, just to let you know, because now I've wet your whistle. Um, in January, we are going to be starting in the youth building over on the other side of the campus there, our new youth building, a, in ele- at our 11 o'clock service, a, what we're going to call a video venue for worship. And what it's going to be is, is that we're going to have targeting really families in their 30s and 40s with a more contemporary staple or style of worship. And, uh, and they're going to have their own pastor over there and it's for whoever wants to go to that. And then the message will be simulcast live from here into there. 
And some of you are saying, well, why are you doing that? Two reasons that we want to try this. One is because as we become bigger as a church, we want to try to provide venues for some of you that are smaller, more intimate worship venues where you can get to know the people you worship with as well as the pastor that's going to be there that will be giving the announcements and greeting you and all that. Um, the second reason is, though, however, is that I am of the opinion, and this is what y'all brought me in to do, that as we move forward as a church, we're going to have to start to mess just a little bit with worship and musical style. Did I say that sensitively enough? That as we move forward as a church, we got to do that. And, and I'm not ready yet to do that in the three big services here yet, but we got to see what's going to happen as we offer a more contemporary worship venue on Sunday morning here, because we offer one on Sunday evening, and it's very well attended. Just under 1,000 people come, but we don't offer one on Sunday morning. And so as we continue that trend, that's not going to help us as we move forward. So believe me, don't hear me saying, if any of you go out of here saying, Jamie said we're getting rid of the orchestra, you're liars. I did not say that. Did I even hint to that? No, I did not. What I did say is that we need to start bringing some more contemporary venues to Sunday morning, and in January of 2009, this is going to be our start. Okay? Isn't that a cool thing? Give me a head nod. Yep, it is a cool thing. And so... And all I can say is for those of you who say, I'm not going to a video venue, you know, you might want to try it because, you know, the reality is you watch me on this anyways. And so, you know, unless you're in the first three or four rows, you're already watching a video. And, and, and I'm still live on campus here with you. It's just that it's a way to try to get some more intimate venues. All right, John talked last week on 2 Peter chapter 2, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk on the same verses by design because there's two main themes in this passage here. Christ is the cornerstone, which is what John talked about last week. And then our response now is the people of God building on the foundation of Christ as our cornerstone. That's what we're going to talk about today. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, indeed you have given us your word. You've given us each other. Most importantly, you've given us Jesus Christ. And as we learned last week, he is our cornerstone. He's even a stumbling stone. He's our future stone. And, uh, and on him, everything is built. So today, Lord, we want to talk about what privileges we have now as we move forward in our relationship with Christ and build our lives upon the foundation of him. So God, give us wisdom and insight as we turn to your word now. May you be honored and glorified, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Well, think about this with me. I, I've not yet met anybody in life, I mean not anybody, no matter how humble or unassuming they are, who at some point in their lives don't enjoy a few special privileges now and then. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I just find that every one of us, no matter what your lot in life is, tend to enjoy some special privileges every once in a while. I've only flown first class once in my entire life. It was on a quick commuter flight from Detroit to Cleveland back in the mid-90s. But I got to tell you, it was nice. You ever flown first class? Uh, somebody gave Paul and I a couple of tickets to the Diamondbacks game a few weeks ago, and we had no idea where these seats were. When we got there, we were in the second row, three feet off home plate. I got to tell you, that was nice. Or how about when you go to a fancy restaurant and they wait on you in a way that you don't get at Denny's? Isn't that kind of nice? I, I mean, we enjoy special privileges now and then. And if you're like me, life is filled with them. Some of them big, some of them small, but they're privileges nonetheless. 
like a low interest credit card or a five-star hotel or a skybox at the sporting event or joining some kind of club. Even just a simple yes sir or yes ma'am once in a while from somebody serving you. It's fascinating. The word privilege is defined by the dictionary as a right or immunity granted as a peculiar benefit, advantage, or favor. I like that. It's a benefit that you experience, an advantage, if you will, that in the right measure makes you feel kind of special and encouraged. And I haven't met anybody yet who at some point in their lives, even if they're as humble and non-assuming as a Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, I haven't met anybody who in some small way doesn't enjoy special privileges now and then. We all do. I think it's part of our makeup to enjoy special treatment, to be seen as special once in a while. And the reason that this is so important, folks, to recognize is that God, in his word, has actually declared that, that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are now accorded some wonderful and life-giving privileges just by now being in his kingdom and as a part of his family. It's true. We've been given some privileges by God as being now a part of his family and as ones loved and redeemed by him in Christ. And so to show you this, I want you to turn to our main passage today in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2. And we're going to focus only today on verses 4 and 5 and then verses 9 and 10. Because this is where the privileges come in. Again, John explained much of the other texts last week. And so look at what it says. And as I read this, see if you can pick up on some privileges that you and I now have as followers of Jesus. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I got to tell you, there are privileges like flying left and right all throughout this passage. And I mean privileges that make first class seating and a skybox at the game look like kindergarten. And before we dive in and unpack these privileges that God lays out here for us, we first need to understand just a couple of things. This is really important about this passage here, the flow and the context of it, so that you might really get what's going on here. And, and, and I want you to notice that it all begins by stating that you and I are living stones that are being constructed into a spiritual house. Do you see that there in verse 5? Living stones who are being built into a spiritual house. Folks, this is a very rich and significant word picture that the author is giving us here. And you don't want to miss it. Because you see, it plays off some profound Old Testament imagery that Peter's audience would have picked up on like right away in reading this. Because in the Old Testament, as some of us know, God's presence, His power, His goodness were made manifest and known in the temple. In the temple. King Solomon originally constructed it, a huge and elaborate place made of strong and beautiful stones. And what the Old Testament tells us is that God dwelled there and literally, we'll see in a minute, through the priests, that's how he met with his people. So I've given you a picture there of a, that's a reconstruction there of what Solomon's temple might have looked like. And you can see the elaborate stonework of why Peter would say stones and things like that. And in this temple, you had priests 
holy people who offered the required sacrifices and worship that pleased God and atoned for the sins of the nation. So, so get this, a temple and priests, that's by and large how people in the Old Testament related to God and got to know him. They experienced his presence in the temple and then the pathway to forgiveness was through the work of the priests. But then the temple, as many of you know, got destroyed a few hundred years after Solomon's death due to the people's sin. And then some of the priests turned corrupt. But then they rebuilt the temple again. This is what the book of Ezra is about. And so when Jesus finally shows up on the scene, he's dealing with an audience that all is still looking to the temple for God's presence and goodness. And yet one of the things that Jesus did that rocked the first century is that he made it clear that the temple days are now over, as well the days of the priests. He made it clear that with his coming, God's presence is now found in personal faith relationship with Christ, and that God now inhabits the fellowship or the relationship of his people. Isn't that cool? In other words, he said, he said, no longer do you need a priest as a mediator to God. You can come to God directly through me, Jesus said, through faith and, and trust in me and my forgiveness of your sins through my death on a cross. But then he said, and as far as that presence of God thing, that now is inhabited in the people of God. When you gather together as a church, as Jesus said, for where two or three come together in my name. And folks, once you get that, that's exactly what Peter is getting at here. He's saying that we now, you and me as followers of Jesus, making up this thing called the church are the living stones that make up the temple in whom God is making a spiritual house. That just like God met them in the temple made of stones and spoke to them in and through priests, that we now are the stones. We're now the priests in whom God's presence and his activity is made known. I mean, this is powerful stuff. I love how Peter Davids, one of the foremost experts on the book of 1 Peter Alive Today, says it. He says this is, and I quote, a living metaphor, not some fixed theological principle. In other words, he's not trying to just give us doctrine here, saying this is a nice truth. He's trying to say, you guys don't get it. You really are the, the stones that make up the temple. You're the priests that make up the activity and the pathway to God. You guys now are the ones, the church, who, who are, that God wants to live in and breathe in and do his work in. And so the implication here is that many, if not most, of the blessings and privileges that were once reserved for only Israel and the temple and the priests, Peter is saying, are now reserved for you and for me. That we have some privileges, some benefits and advantages that are now ours as the people of God that are ours as the living stones, as the spiritual house, and as the priests who make up this house. And so with this profound image of stones and houses and everyday run-of-the-mill priests made up of you and me, four things you don't want to miss here. Four things that Peter tells us are now the privileges of God's people. And here's the first one, and that is that we have the privilege of serving God with our gifts and talents. Did you know that? You and I have the privilege now of serving God, and we'll see what that means here in just a second, with our gifts and with our talents. Look at how he says this again in verse 5 and then verse 9. This is fascinating. He says, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, now get this, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then skip down to verse 9. But you are a royal priesthood. So twice there he tells us, that we are a holy or a royal priesthood. 
And what you simply need to know, folks, and I've already hinted to this, is that the priesthood in the Old Testament was like a totally privileged group of people. And I mean privileged group of people. You see, in the Old Testament, there was only two relatively small classes of people who could serve as priests. Those who were descendants of Aaron, they were the high priests. And those who were the descendants of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these priests, this rather small class of people, were the primary mediators in the Old Testament between God and humankind. They were the ones who served in the temple, remember, presence of God in the temple, and did all that was needed to make sure that the people were right with God. So they oversaw all the sacrificial system that atoned for the sins of Israel. They were the ones who taught the people about who God is in addition to the prophets. They're the ones who actually mediated disputes that happened between the people. And they're the ones that took all the tithes and offerings and distributed them to those in need throughout Israel, as well as kept the nation going and growing. I mean, please see, these were people who served God as priests and leaders using their gifts and callings to help people know and love Him. And they were a privileged group of leaders, just a fraction of the entire nation of Israel called to serve God in a unique way. And mark my words, when they were doing it right, Things functioned smoothly, and everybody appreciated it, and they appreciated them. And so don't miss that what Peter is telling us here is that now you and I, as well as every follower of Jesus, are now the priests. We're the ones who now have direct access to God, no longer needing a mediator because Jesus is our mediator, and they're now the ones who are to serve daily and hourly, wherever we may be found, serving God and others with the gifts and the passions he has given us. Do you see that there? I mean, this rocked Peter's original audience. They're saying, what do you mean we're the priests? We're not from the tribe of Levi. We're not the one. They have, they have that special privilege. We have that privilege? Peter's saying, yes. Now anybody who claims the name of Jesus is to serve God anywhere and everywhere with the gifts and passions that he has specifically given you. And so it's no coincidence, folks, that three other New Testament books, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians, will go on to talk about the fact that God has given spiritual gifts at least one to every follower of Jesus, that we might serve God in areas that are meaningful and fulfilling to us. And some of you are saying right now, because you might be new to this, like, what are spiritual gifts? Simply a divine enablement. It's an area where God has allowed you to excel in your skill set, excel in your service to him. And you get this, he's given a couple dozen different gifts to the body at large, at least one to each and every one of us that he wants us to use to serve him. So look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. You might start to get the picture. He says there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Now get this. He says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And then isn't it fascinating that he goes on in the following verses, I don't have this for it, you can look it up later, to mention what these gifts are. He says, to some are given wisdom, others knowledge, other faith, others healing, miracles, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, discernment. To each one is given the manifestation. Why? So that there can, there can be variety of areas of service. And then look at Romans 12. It says something similar. Paul says, For as in one body has many members, and the members not all have the same function, so we who are many 
are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now get this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. And then he goes on to mention prophecy and service and teaching and encouragement, giving, leading, and mercy. Gifts that differ, got at least one of them. And then check out Ephesians 4. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, others evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so check this out, folks. All in all, when you add up some gifts that then Peter is also going to mention later on in this book that we're studying, I count no less than 22 different gifts given to Christ's followers, not just to one person, but, but broadly dispersed throughout each of us, gifts that we use to serve him now as priests in his kingdom. Do you see that? In other words, just like he equipped priests back then with different strengths, different things to do, he's equipped you and I with different things. And what a privilege it is and how meaningful it is when you find your sweet spot, your gift, and what it means to serve him. And all i got to tell you, folks, is that when you finally get this, when you finally get that he really has given different gifts like hospitality and mercy and encouragement and teaching and leadership and shepherding and prophecy and all these different gifts, when you find out what your gift or a couple of gifts are, it revolutionizes your walk with God. It really does. And your service to him. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about my journey here, and maybe you'll, you'll start to get this. As many of you know, I, I became a Christian back in, what, about 1981. And uh, I was at that time about 17 years old. And uh, as I shared with you guys, I, I got really excited about my newfound faith when I first became a Christian. And so there I am, just a young guy, just getting out of high school and college. And I go to the church and I tell them I want to serve him. Like I was really fired up and ready to, to just run with God. Now, have you ever noticed, what do they say to a young guy who wants to serve God? Where do they tell him to start? What ministry do they usually put a young guy like that in? Does anybody know? Youth work, right? Youth ministry. Like, I think they figure you can't mess it up anymore, right? So, like, start him there. And further, what, what role do they usually give a young guy in that youth ministry? Ever notice this? It would be like a shepherding role, right? Like meet with a bunch of kids, have cokes with them, talk to them about Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. So, so add that up. They start you in youth ministry and they make you a shepherd. And here's my question. Why? Why do we do that to anybody, let alone young guys that are starting out in ministry? I mean, for eight years, I was relegated to youth ministry. And let me tell you, out of 22 different gifts, of which shepherding is one, what do you think the chances are I had a shepherding gift? And out of the myriad of different passions that are alive in yours and mine souls, what do you think the chances were mine was youth ministry? I'll tell you, the proof was in the pudding. After eight years, nobody asked me to write a book on youth ministry. Some of you are saying no one's asking you to write a book now. That's beside the point. But nobody was asking me to write a book about youth ministry. Nobody was asking me to speak to the kids. I wasn't good at it. But I muddled my way through college and seminary doing all that. And then I graduated from seminary. So here I am with a, a master's in theology. And I uh, landed at a large church in the Chicago area. And one of the first questions they asked me as an intern there is, what are your spiritual gifts? And I did what many of you do. I gave them that infamous deer-in-the-head-like look. 
And then I decided to try to fake it, right? Because I had no clue what they were talking about. So I said, well, I'm pretty good at basketball and I like to hang out with kids and I like to write now and then. And they said, stop, you have no clue what we're talking about. And for the next three months, they took me through an in-depth understanding of all the different spiritual gifts and then helped me discover, I'll share how in a minute, what my gifts were. And 1989 was a watershed year for me. Why? Because I discovered that year that God had not gifted me in 20 key areas that he outlines in his word. 20 areas! In other words, I realized that he did not gift me as a mercy giver. Kim could have told you that one. I found out he did not gift me as an encourager, a counselor, a helps guy, a service guy, hospitality, prophecy. Boy, it goes on and on. I found out there were two areas that he gifted me in. And those were teaching and leadership. Teaching and leadership, and it changed my entire walk with God. It changed the course of my ministry. Because I thought, no longer am I going to start pouring myself into all these other things, though we have responsibilities in those areas. I mean, I still got to show mercy and do hospitality and all that, but that just means I got to order a pizza now and then. What, what, what it does mean is that the bulk of my energy is like 80% can now go into the areas that I'm good at. And to coin the phrase that we all know, I found my sweet spot spiritually that year. And I vowed that year, and don't tell anybody, but I vowed that year that they wouldn't have to pay me to do this anymore. I mean, I love it so much. And even on my days now where I'm exhausted and fatigued and maybe overwhelmed with things, I still love what I do. Why? Because I'm serving God as a priest in my sweet spot, leadership and teaching. And what you simply need to know is that my heart's desire as your pastor is that every one of you would find the same that you would find that, that sweet spot area, whether it's hospitality, mercy, encouragement, maybe, maybe prophecy, which simply means speaking truth in a harsh way toward people to convict them of their sin. I mean, it's a, it's a gritty gift, but an awesome gift. I mean, whether your gift is, is, is in a support role like giving or discernment, wisdom, knowledge, or whether it's in an upfront role like teaching or creative communication or, or preaching, I mean, God has gifted each one of us. He's promised to. My passion is to help you find those gifts. And so how do you do that? Well, a lot of churches give assessments, like tests, to help people find their gift. Man-made things that we've come up with that tell you what your gifts are. And I've used those, and they're okay, and we might throw some around here in the future. The only problem with those is, is that they're man-made things, right? Like, and so what makes us think they're all that accurate? And plus, I find, just quite frankly, most people don't find them very helpful at the end of the day. So over the years, there's been three things that you might want to write these down. Three things that have helped me discover my gifts. First is that you've got to know what the gifts are, right? So when I said earlier, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and now let's add 1 Peter 4, you've got to read those four passages if you at all care what spiritual gifts are. And when you read about them, you understand what they are. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what encouragement is or counseling or giving, leadership, administration. I mean, you'll get it. But understand, familiarize yourself with the different gifts that God has given. Second thing you do, ask those who know you, like your spouse, your parents, your good friends, those who have seen you in a spiritual context, your small group leaders, what gifts do you think I have? And if they say, what do you mean? Start listing them. Well, here's what gifts I think I might have. Have you seen evidence or fruit that I have these gifts? Ask them for crying out loud. Like if you were to go up to Kim today and say, does Jamie have gifts in mercy? She'd be going like this, right? 
because she knows me pretty well. Or if you said, you know, does, does Jamie have gifts in hospitality or even administration? She'd be going, whoa, no, you're barking up the wrong tree there. But if you all of a sudden you say, even back early on in the 80s when we were dating, does he have gifts in teaching? Yeah, I think that's what he does well. I think that's what God's gift him to do. Do they have gifts in leadership? Well, he's kind of green, kind of barb-like at times. But yeah, I think I see some embryonic gifts functioning there too as well. And that's how it works. And then the third thing you do, and this is the real killer, is you just do it. Just get involved in service. And over time, as you try different areas and different areas of giftedness, you're going to know whether or not you're gifted there or not. So I joke about the mercy thing, right? But how do I know I'm not gifted at mercy? First time I went to visit somebody in the hospital, I realized that one. I mean, I visited somebody in the hospital and didn't really know what to do. And, you know, gosh, I can't wait to get out of here, you know, and things like that. And, and then when I left, they said, thanks for coming, Pastor. Don't quit your day job. You know, things like that, right? And so you realize pretty quick there's certain gifts that maybe I'm not very good at. And again, it doesn't take you off the hook. God still calls Jamie to be merciful. But the reality is, is that over time, I realized what God seems to empower in my life is teaching and leadership. What does he empower in your life? That's the question that should be ringing in your ears. Because you see, service is not um, a choice. It's something God does call you to do. It's a privilege that he calls you right up to. But, but you can find an area that's meaningful for you. So three areas of practical application, if you're interested here this morning. Three ways that you can start to apply this even right now in your life. Uh, first is simply to bloom where you're planted. Serve God each moment of each day in your sphere of influence. Simply put, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do have at least one spiritual gift, as we've established. Now use it as a priest wherever he has you. I mean, one of the biggest myths of serving is that you've got to find some formal area of service in the church, right? That's what many people think. That's not necessarily true. I mean, God calls you to serve in the marketplace. He calls you to serve in your family, in your community, in your Bible study, with your kids, with your parents. He calls you to take that gift that he's given you anywhere and everywhere now and use it to benefit others and to serve him and advance the kingdom on this earth. Don't wait to find a formal, formal area of service. Just serve. Secondly, do find a formal area of service, however, and if this is your church, through SBC. As I said earlier, we have hundreds, hundreds of different ministries and positions that we need people to serve in here to make our church the kind of prevailing church that God wants us to be. And so usher, greet, work in the parking lot, go to the teen ministry if that's your thing, Bible studies, enrichment class leaders, office helpers, missions, singles ministry, recovery ministries, men's and women's ministries. I mean, we can't be the church if, every one of, if, if not every one of us aren't acting and functioning with the gift that God has given us. And then thirdly, and I'm going to talk more about this next week, but this is one, one of the wonderful traits of our church historically, is to find an area of service maybe outside the walls of this church and outside the ministry of this church. I love the fact that historically Daryl has said, come grow, go, Right? So, so go start CFCA. Go, go work with neighborhood ministries. Uh, get involved with a, some justice ministry down in the city or in the burbs here. I mean, he, he just, it, 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 always the message was, let's benefit the kingdom of God in general, not just inside our little confining walls. And, and so maybe that's where your niche is. We actually have an entire booklet you can get out at the Welcome Center called Epic that will help you understand all the different ministries in the Phoenix area and the, the service areas that they need. But you get the point. 
however you do it, in whatever way you do it, just please know that a huge reason that God has saved you, that he's called you into the kingdom, is to now serve him. It's a privilege. And he's even given you gifts and passions to make it very meaningful and successful. Okay, that's the first privilege he outlines for us here. Now, some of you clock watchers are thinking right now, man, Jamie, you just spent 25 minutes on point one. Do you know that? And yes, I know that. And you're thinking, you've got three more points to go before I can get back out into this breath-suckingly hot weather. So, anyways, I'm very aware of that. We needed to spend a bulk of our time on this first point, because again, historically, it's called the priesthood of all believers. It's so critical that we get this. And so I'm going to give you the other three points right now, but we're going to do a little bit more of a drive-by, um, and then uh, we'll talk about these, I'm sure, more in the future. But, but the second one I want to spend a few moments on, too. And, and as a setup to it, I want you to do something for me, all right? Because this is really critical stuff. I want you to close your eyes right now, and I'm going to do it with you. Close your eyes, and as you close your eyes, I, I want you to um, think in your mind about a time in your life when someone truly loved you. And I mean loved you and accepted you for who you were without a lot of strings attached when someone loved you. I want you to think of a person. Maybe it's somebody living. Maybe it's somebody who's gone who you know really loved you and cherished you in a way that you don't experience very often. In fact, that most people don't experience very often. So you might be thinking right now of a grandparent or of an old friend or maybe of a teacher who poured into you or even of your spouse, whoever. I want you to think about a person or a time when you felt deeply and wonderfully loved and valued more than any other time in your life. And as you do that, as you got that mental picture in your mind, I want you to open up your eyes right now, look up here on the screen, and now you're ready to receive the second privilege point that God has given us here. And it's simply this, that we have the privilege of being the beloved of God. It's true. You and I have the privilege of being the beloved, loved massively by God. And so take that image of your most cherished time of experiencing human love, multiply it now by about 10,000 times, and you just might, just might be starting to get an inkling of how much God truly loves you. As a follower of Son, of son Jesus, and is one now in his kingdom. Look at how Peter communicates this to us. This is profound. Look at verse 9 again, 9 and 10. He says, but you're a chosen race, a chosen race, a people for his own possession. You see, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And folks, again, the Old Testament imagery here is staggering. I mean, when it says that we, you and me as the church, are now a chosen race, this refers to how in Old Testament times God chose Israel. <laughs> Little, no-name Israel. Think about that. I mean, Israel right now is on the map like all over the place, right? Like we're constantly hearing about Israel this, Israel that, and for good reason. But you got to ask, when, when three or 4,000 years ago God chose Israel, why did he choose her? He tells us, he says, I didn't choose you because you were bigger than any other nation or you were more flashy than any other nation. No, what God says is that the reason I chose you is because I wanted to. I chose you because I chose you, period. The value resides in me. He said, I wanted a people for my own possession. I wanted somebody who would belong to me that I could pour my grace through to show the rest of the world how good and awesome I am. And so I chose you. And so don't miss it in using this imagery of choosing 
Phrases, by the way, that up until 1 Peter were only used of Israel. Peter is now telling us that this is how God thinks and feels about you and me, the church, as one's now in his kingdom. He's now saying that you are the people of God. You're the ones ready to receive all the blessings and benefits that I want to bestow. My love, my forgiveness, my goodness, my presence. And truly, we are the beloved of God, the people of God. And so let this sink in in a moment today, folks. One of the privileges that you and I now have as a follower of Jesus is to know, to have rock-solid assurance that God loves us, has forgiven us, and that now thinks of us in a very special way, a kind of way that makes our most meaningful human experience, the one we just thought of a minute ago, pale in comparison. He loves you that much. And the reason that I think this is so important is that I think this has profound implications of how you and I think about God, life, ourselves, and others each moment of each day. I think it changes everything. I want to share with you a story out of a book I read a few years back that, that kind of rocked my, my world. When I first came here, I got in a little bit of trouble with some of you by sharing that one of my favorite writers was a Catholic writer by the name of Brennan Manning. And that bothered some of you that I would enjoy a Catholic writer, but I didn't have time to defend myself too much. The reality is, is that um, just because I read authors or books in which I don't agree with the, their entire worldview or even significant parts of their worldview doesn't mean that one, they can't affect me. And secondly, when it comes to this guy, Brennan Manning, even though he is a a Catholic writer, and obviously I don't agree with much of Catholic theology, um, he doesn't write about the things that I don't agree on. In other words, he never talks about Mary, never talks about transubstantiation, never talks about the Mother Church. Brennan Manning almost always seems to write about Jesus, our faith in Jesus, and the love of God that we find in Jesus. In fact, recently a Catholic scholar accused him of of out-Luthering Luther in his worldview. I mean, that's a pretty strong indictment for a Catholic theologian. And so years ago in his, one of his premier books called The Ragamuffin Gospel, he tells a story of him growing up Catholic back in the 1950s. And again, this is not a, to get down in the Catholic church, this is a Catholic talking about his own church, but it, I found the story both funny as well as one that I can relate to. So, so listen close. He says, you're at a baseball game at Yankee Stadium on a Friday night in June 1950. Now, Catholics are forbidden to eat meat on Friday under penalty of mortal sin, but you want a hot dog. He says, now just considering eating meat on Friday is a venial sin, wanting to is another one. You've not moved in your seat and you've already sinned twice. He asks, what if you actually ate one? Aside from the risk of choking on forbidden food and getting punished right on the spot, have you committed a mortal sin or a venial sin? Well, if you think it's mortal, it may be mortal, but if you think it's venial, it still may be mortal. After much thought, you decide it's venial. So you call the hot dog vendor, you take money out of your pocket, and you buy a hot dog. But this is clearly an act of free will. You figure you can go confess your sin to the priest on Saturday night. But wait, does a venial sin become mortal when you commit it deliberately? That's a chance you have to take. What if you've forgotten it's Friday? Well, in that case, eating a hot dog may not be a sin, but forgetting Friday is a sin. What if you remember it's Friday halfway through the hot dog? Is it a venial sin to finish it? You throw it away? Is that a sin? He finally concludes the simplest thing to do is to not take any chance, stay away from Yankee Stadium on Fridays. I got to tell you, when I read this years ago, I thought to myself, it doesn't take a guilty Catholic to relate to this kind of thing. We got lots of guilty Protestants running around today, right? 
And you know, here's the deal. Guilt, as many of us know, can be a very good thing. I mean, we, we, we use guilt in our, in our families in healthy ways to help people feel bad about their sin and try to be more righteous. But guilt at the same time can also become a very shame-based thing, can't it? I mean, you can spiral down in your guilt to the point that, that you don't find God anymore, you, you run away from others, kind of like Jonah when he was running in the Old Testament. The reality is, is that when you experience that kind of guilt and shame that Manon was wrestling with that day at Yankee Stadium, um, you're not really feeling as beloved by God anymore, are you? And especially if you're a Christian. And the reality is, is that God comes along and says, don't you get it? I died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. As far as the east is from the west, I threw them away from you. I throw them in the sea of forgetfulness. They used to be as red as scarlet, now they're as white as snow. Jesus said that if one sheep wanders, I'm leaving 99 and I'm going to get that one. And the reality is, is that his forgiveness knows no bounds. He declares you the beloved. And so we don't need to play silly games like Brennan talks about here. Those days are over for you and for me. Every day we wake up, and like Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, your mercies are new every morning because of who you are in Christ. And that changes everything. So we serve him. That's a privilege. We get to call ourselves loved in a special way. That's certainly a privilege. And we're out of time, so let me just give you these last two. And we've talked about these, and we'll talk about them more. Is at three, we have the privilege of living set apart in holy lives. Verse 9 says that you're a, a holy nation who's called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Again, a wonderful Old Testament illustration. He called Israel holy. He now calls us holy. I did a message a couple weeks ago on, on holiness. You can get that. We fleshed out what that means. And then lastly, Peter says we have the privilege of talking up our God to all who would hear. I love how he says this in verse 9. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. In other words, you and I, kind of like when we first got engaged and we couldn't wait to tell everybody about this newfound person that God has brought into our lives, he says, guess what? God has brought Jesus into your life and you now get to tell anybody and everybody about the excellencies, the excitement, what he's done in your life. Talk him up to those around you. We're going to talk about that again more in the coming weeks. Why is this such an important issue today, folks? Well, as we wrap up, I want you to think what this world would be like if every follower of Jesus knew and took advantage of these privileges that we've looked at here today. I mean, imagine what, what this world would be like if every believer in Christ, every follower of Christ, anywhere and everywhere, served God from a sense of their gifts and passions. And we'd rock this world. Imagine what would happen if every follower of Christ truly realized and lived from a deep sense of being the beloved. Imagine that. No shame driving us, no guilt that makes us feel so angry about everything. Imagine if, if all of us just felt day in and day out a sense of being loved massively by God. Imagine what would happen if every one of us lived from a sense of holiness as we saw a couple weeks ago. Imagine what would happen if every one of us started to live the privilege of talking Christ up to those around us. I mean, mix and match, combine all this together. It has the power to rock Scottsdale, rock Phoenix, rocks your world, rock our church, rock your family. I mean, this stuff really works. It's changed my life. It's changed Kim's life. These are meaningful things that God outlines in his word here. And it's where we're going as a church. So would you bow with me and pray? Father, I thank you that uh, in your word, once again, you, you, you deliver up such meaningful, relevant, and livable truth. And Lord, it is truth. There's no doubting that. 
And God, I thank you that once you've called us into your kingdom, then you've given us certain amazing privileges that are ours, advantages and benefits that we can base our lives on. So Lord, for those of us who um, either are serving you in more of a, of a menial way or Lord, are even not serving you at all, I pray that today might be a, a watershed day where we start to focus more on the gifts that you've given us and to find an area that we can serve you uh, that's meaningful and that we feel successful in. Pray, Father, too, that as we um, focus on this idea of being loved by you, I know there's some of us here today that that barely gets through. Their life is so filled with shame and with muck that it's, the message doesn't get in. I pray, God, for a healing upon their lives. And that, Lord, somehow you might just break through like sun breaking through on a cloudy day. Just break through your love for them. Father, help us be more holy. Help us have the courage to talk you up with those around us and enjoy and with loads of relationality behind us so people don't feel threatened. And Father, as you add and mix all that up together, would you use us? Use us to make a dent in Scottsdale and Phoenix in our lives and our communities and our neighborhood. May, Lord, your church be an unstoppable force of love and of truth and of grace as we build upon Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you and have a great week.